0: And we're back at the bait and switch podcast. Tonight's guest is Tom Schuler. Now you might remember Tom from our Tour de France preview podcast of this year. He's a local Milwaukee cycling legend. He raced professionally in cycling, and uh, our shows are not particularly topical. We don't talk about current events, but one that we do is the Tour de France preview podcast. And I want to get a little bit into the podcast that we did that night. And this will just be a brief thing. He said something during the podcast that turned out to be very prescient. I left it out of the podcast, and I'm going to play a little snippet for him and uh, our listeners here in just a second.
1: You left it out because you had no faith.
0: I didn't think it was that big a deal. I will introduce Tom in just a second, but I'm first going to play a clip of what Tom said that night that I snipped
2: out.
1: Okay. Uh, next up is Quick Step.
2: Yeah, Quick Step. Um, you know, is they're the winningest team this year, winning most team, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Philippe, I think, has won nine or ten races this year. He's certainly their flash. Um, he may go for the the uh, mountains jersey, or he may go for stages. He may educate, you know, learn more about riding for GC this year. All right, let me let me stop you right there. <laughs>
0: Do you think Al-Philippe will, I'll throw this out there, will Will Julian al ever be a GC contender?
2: I don't think he will. I think he's too flashy a rider. He likes going in the brakes and doing fun, like attacks and attacks down descents and everything. And his time trialing isn't the strongest, and I think he's happy where he is now as the guy who wins the one-day
1: races or a bunch of stages.
0: Yeah, it's, it's curious because every now and then there's a guy like this like hey, seems like he can climb pretty well. Uh but then can he make that transition from climbing hills to climbing mountains? He
1: did he did win the Tour of California a couple of years, three or four years ago. Um but, but yeah, that I mean, you know, that's what 9 days versus uh versus 3 weeks. Right.
2: Right. Yeah, he um but he will get the latitude within that right. team on, on their roster, he probably will be their their protected rider for GC. Right.
0: I just played a clip where Tom predicted that Julian Alfleep would be Quick Step's GC rider for the tour and that he might be a GC rider for the tour, which nobody was saying. So, Tom, where did you get that information?
2: So, I'm happy to be here, you guys. Again, yeah, thank welcome. you for this yeah, opportunity. Thanks welcome. Thank for coming yeah. in. But, uh, <laughs> Thank you for that praise and that lucky guess, I mm. guess. So certain riders have that ambition, and it's too early to tell on someone like Al-Philippe, and it turned out he'd probably done all the preparation, and he said, if this, if I get there, I'm going to go for it. And really what we saw was um, a step along a possible Grand Tour winner.
0: You know, it's funny because I was the one in the clip that was skeptical and said, now hold on, do you think this guy can really be GC? And again, I think as well as he did, I think he's probably going to stay a one-day rider. He ended up getting fifth. He did quite well. A lot of people said that this was one of the best tours
2: in years. You, you agree with that? It was very open. Uh, that's what we want. We want a fair race. We didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but you got the other factor you have to remember about Al Philippe and any Frenchman this is not, the Tour de France is not just any old stage race to them. Right. This is the world's biggest race, and they're a French rider. So, you know, they'll do anything they can to turn themselves into a potential tour rider. And after two or three cracks, this may be as close as Al-Philippe ever gets to winning the Tour de France.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, the reason we're talking about this, I did reference this earlier. Tom Schuler was a professional bike rider let's start at the beginning. Where did your cycling career
2: start? I grew up in Detroit. We had a strong cycling racing program through the Wolverine Sports Club. We had a velodrome. So I think when I was about 14, I got hooked in with uh, the Wolverine Sports Club just because I enjoyed riding my bikes with friends. We'd ride around Lake Huron, go into Canada. I don't know how my parents let us do that (laughs) back then. Overnight trips for eight days, with, you know, 50 bucks in our pocket or something. <laughs> and we had a strong racing program in Detroit, so I just really enjoyed the competitive aspects. My last year of high school, I was kind of having some success, and I I said, you know, I could do something with this. Cycled through college, kept racing on the national team. What
0: about, you just said Indiana. What about uh, Breaking Away? Did you ever race that race depicted in the movie?
2: No, I never. <laughs> you, uh, essentially, you had to go to the University of Indiana. Okay. Uh, I No, I've never seen it. It's on my bucket list. I want to go check that thing out. The, it's the Little Indy 500. Yeah, Little 500. Little 500. And uh, I've known lots of people I raced with that were on. went to IU uh, and, and did that thing, and it's, it's quite an event. It's bringing cycling, bringing bike races to the public, which is what we just did here at the Tour of America's Dairyland. In Wauwatosa on North Avenue, you, yeah. you bring yep.
0: bike racing to the public. When did you get involved with the national team and, and things like that?
2: Um, as a uh, you know, once I turned senior to race on a, get an invite to a national team trip. My first trip uh, was up in Montreal, and then um, I think I ended up fourth in that race um, with so some international in the, in the 70s. Maybe I or? would have been 18 or 19. Yeah, it would have been like 75. So you know it's just on and on. Then you get invited for to other trips, and this was before we had a professional class in America. So if you wanted to make it to the Olympics or make it to the highest level in in bike racing mm-hmm. in this country, you were an amateur. So the Olympics okay. were the pinnacle, the World Championships. So that was until the Seven Eleven team then started in, for me in eighty one, and then. That group turned professionally (coughs) 85. Now we had a team, the 7-Eleven team, that went off to Europe as a team, as an American team. So that was kind of a game changer in 85. In
0: 85, were you involved in the Olympics at all?
2: Yeah, so I was um, an alternate on the 76 team, and then I was on the 80 team that boycotted if you remember that, the Moscow Olympics. Mm -hmm. How
0: difficult was that for you to...
2: So it wasn't, wasn't at the time, it wasn't really that hard on us, because on me, because um, I had ambitions beyond the Olympics, which were a professional career. So I was thinking in that direction. A gymnast, like if your best years were 1980 as a gymnast, there is no professional gymnastics. You're done. Right. Uh, Right, sure. An athlete that didn't have a... By career opportunity. No, I, a, After 80, yeah. I had 10 s- strong years where I got paid to race my bike. Um, those opportunities didn't exist for swimmers, gymnasts, and maybe you, all, you know you weren't in 84, you weren't at your peak anymore. Sure, you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. a lot of people did get their opportunity taken away. In hindsight, I would have liked to have competed in Moscow. So it's yeah. A, yeah. It, yeah. It, it was something that happened. Then in 84, I was an alternate again. I, I think I should have been on that team, but... There was a little, uh, a little blood doping going on within within the sport. So right, I, was, I remember that. I was, I was uh, sort of a, a victim of that to a certain degree.
0: Uh, in '84, you said you had started with 7-Eleven in '81. Wouldn't that preclude you from doing so, the Olympics in '84 um, at that point? So
2: that's a very good question. So every sport, every Olympic sport, decided how they were going to integrate their professionals into the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, some sports integrated, I think tennis integrated earlier. Sure. Cycling didn't integrate till 96, which is Atlanta. So, okay. Frank okay. Andre, Lance Armstrong, I was retired by then. But all those professionals were able to ride in Atlanta. So, mm. the, all the best cyclists in the world were in Atlanta because we were fully integrated, had integrated the professional sport into the Olympics until that year. So, in 92 was Barcelona. Lance Armstrong was our top guy. He was in... Quote, amateur.
1: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. But whether or not you're, quote, an amateur or a professional, athlete, amateur athletes were allowed to get paid going back to whenever someone wanted to pay them. And that's the mm. Amateur Sports Act of, of 1978 that Frank Shorter, the runner, helped pen. And it, it basically, you can be an amateur and still get money because okay. basically the Russians, the East Germans were all, quote, amateurs mm. and they were they being paid. paid. Sure. So that's that, um, so the the uh so I started getting paid when the seven eleven team started in eighty one It was very paltry salary, but at the right. time it was the best it was the best
1: paying cycling gig in America that's amazing i mean that's that's really cool. so you were part of that very first seven eleven team that started that's that's awesome. you got to be that's a lot cool.
0: of pride with being a pioneer over in Europe with American sure. cyclists.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I sort of backed off the, the European stuff because um, my wife and I started having a family in about 80, 86 was our first child. So I sort of pulled back from the European. We went to Europe as professionals in 85. We rode the Giro. I was the, uh, that was our first Grand Tour. I was on that team. And then our, our first child was born in 86. So I, we were being asked to move to Europe you know and oh, okay. I wasn't ready to do much, that yeah. so I stayed with the team and I worked with the younger riders continued to race mostly domestically right. uh, <clears throat> through the, through the end of my career in 90 and then 711 morphed into Motorola right yeah that's correct I stayed with the team and that's when I retired and I stayed in a management role with the team I was the assistant general manager to Jim Acquits for a couple of years and Jim Acquits is a local uh, Milwaukee Guy. Yeah, Jim grew up um, in New Berlin, was a two-time Olympian on the track, on the Velodrome, uh, was a teammate of mine uh, on a team that predated 7-Eleven <laughs> called AMF. It was Jim Okowitz, myself, Eric Heiden, Beth Heiden, um, oh, some other cool. speed skaters. No. And that was sort of the roots of the 7-Eleven team because we were all from here. Right. So I was actually Eric living Hyden, in
1: Chicago at the time. Eric Hyden was a biker? A yeah. He Yeah, well, he was.
2: Cyclist? He used cycling as training, and he sure. always wanted to do more. Okay. So after 80, when he retired, mm-hmm. he dedicated a few years to cycling. Okay. Just to see what he could do. Sure. It makes sense. I mean, his yeah. legs are built for it, yeah. for sure. So he, he always used cycling in his training. Uh huh. Um, he was very uh, uh, advanced in all his training. Okay. And right. it was a lot of fun to go to a, a bike race anywhere around the country with Eric Hyden is your teammate. He just won five gold medals, right? Yeah. Star, the year yeah. the, you know six months prior. Yeah, right. Can you, can you imagine what that's like at every bike race? It was, a, it yeah. was he was a big draw. Yeah, okay. and obviously yeah. that's
0: one of the reasons they hired him, right, for publicity.
2: That was a, a you know the the catalyst for the whole team.
0: And the other name we mentioned, Jim Oknovitz, How do you say his name? Jim Okowitz, Yeah, Okowitz, For people that are not familiar with professional cycling, a guy here right from the Milwaukee area is really one of the big names in cycle racing in europe he is uh one of the team directors one of the team
2: owners yeah essentially a team owner um your directors are the coaches on the you know that are essentially uh calling the plays and are in the cars jim rarely does that uh he he can he can do his job from uh, his home in Cal in park city he can do his from his Home in Belgium, or he can be at the race, but he doesn't need to be in the car. Calling the plays or doing the strategy the night before; those are the directors. But he's the, he's the owner of the team, just like Patrick LeFever. Um, just like Trek is a different structure. Trek is a good example. Trek Segafredo is owned by Trek, so the title sponsor owns the team. Oh, okay. Lock, stock, and barrel. You know, most bike companies are just a sponsor of the team and the franchise is owned by the Jim Ockowitz's, the Patrick Lefevers. Mm. Now, one of the names you mentioned uh,
0: earlier was Lance Armstrong, who is the uh, most prominent name in cycling. And obviously his name is tied to the problems that he had regarding doping.
2: Uh, did you run into any of that during your career? So, oh, yeah. I mean, when from the day, if you're a cyclist, you're going to run into, doping's going to be around. You're going to see it um when i was an amateur racing in belgium in 77 and 78 so i would have been 20 and 21 you could see it uh in the changing rooms of people huh. administering doping to their their 19 year old kids their 20 year old wow. kids you mean
1: parents even? parents yeah. parents absolutely when, you, when we talk about doping has the definition changed over the years like it used to be performance-enhancing drugs, but then they also talk about uh, oxygenating blood, right, and giving, like, blood transfusions with more oxygen. Is it the same – is it under the same umbrella? Is it the same thing or – So
2: the oxygenating blood, there's different ways you can do it. You can go to altitude, mm-hmm. like if you and I drove to Colorado, we'd be at 6,000 feet at Denver and 10,000 feet at in Breckenridge. Okay. And our blood is going to thicken or we're going to grow red blood cells – that's okay because that happens in, in nature. Okay, They also allow to simulate that through a hyperbaric chamber oh. where you can sleep okay. in an oxygen-depleted uh, chamber mm-hmm. and your body will compensate by, by growing more red blood cells. Okay, the, What's blood doping is when you artificially inject something into your body to Increase your red blood cell count. You can oh, rein- okay. re-inject your own red blood cells that you've taken out uh-huh. and stored. That's blood doping, that's okay. or you oh, can use a okay. drug, which the common name is called EPO, which um, artificially or gets your body to stimulates your body to, to produce more red blood cells. So okay. there's you know as we've moved <laughs> along the spectrum when when uh, there was a you know the authorities in cycling decided they want to crack down on doping mm-hmm. more than just sort of a, a wink at, at what's going on. you know cyclists were dying Cyclists were dying oh, from yeah. thickening their blood too much and sure. uh, having and, strokes. And just mm. before I got it started in Europe cyclists professional cyclists were dying from amphetamine overdose okay mm-hmm. too much amphetamine. So the cycle was sort of uh, you know I want to I, I like to say uh, 70s was amphetamines. 80s was steroids, and 90s and beyond were blood products. And hopefully, there's not something new on the horizon that we don't know about. Sure. You know, I'm certainly not an expert. People that are in the Peloton now would, would tell you, I think, the same thing. But to survive in the sport, you need to be clean now. Sure. You need to be a clean manager. You need to be clean management, and you need to be a clean rider. Hmm. The, there's too many ways you'll get caught and there's too many risks to not only yourself to be banned, mm-hmm. but to your team to lose it to end its sponsorship. Oh, people sure. are still getting caught. There's always some false positives, mm-hmm. um, but those are rare. And but people are still doing things to get ahead. But mm-hmm. generally, there was a time when if you weren't doping in the professional peloton, I don't know when the apex was, could have been certainly around Lance Armstrong's time. Mm-hmm. That if you weren't doping, you were odd. Yeah. Okay. And now, if you yeah. are doping, you're odd, and you're you're outside the the, the norms. Back right. then, if you weren't doing something, you were outside the norms, and you, you probably would've... weren't
1: making it. Right. I mean, to, you know, because you, you weren't, probably weren't exactly gonna, because you couldn't compete with you, those it guys. Was very. You
2: know? I mean, yeah. especially when the blood products came along. Sure. That was a game changer. <laughs> you're talking amphetamine, steroids. You're talking about two, three, four percentage points. You get into blood products. It's like ten percent. Wow! Really? I mean, because okay. oxygen is how you fuel the muscles. You know, you oh, sure, sure. You need oxygen to, to fuel the muscles, and if you can all of a sudden increase your oxygen carrying capacity by a significant amount, and that's what was happening when this the blood products came out. Mm-hmm. The basic premise was: is some is good, more is better. Right. Mm-hmm. So they were thickening their blood to where okay. uh, cyclists where their blood was so thick they were dying of a heart attack in their sleep. You know, when, you're, uh, when you're, your blood
1: can't when your your uh,
2: you... your heart rate has dropped to like thirty-two or whatever, sure. it's just like sludge. And that wow. they, had, they had multiple heart attacks of, of young cyclists in their sleep. There okay. were stories of
0: cyclists getting up in the middle of the night to to you know move it around and to move it around. Yeah, oh, yeah keep, absolutely. Keep going, yeah. You
2: know, this all was going on in the. Sort of in the in the '90s, you know, that was okay. the the peak, and um, you know, that was certainly during Lance's era. So that was the environment he was uh, he was racing in. I okay. think one sure. thing people don't really think about as much: cycling
0: gets a black eye because of this. I think largely because they're not unionized and they get caught a little bit more. But I always say to anybody that says, "Oh, cycling can be a dirty sport," I say, "Your, your favorite Packer, Badger, Brewer, Buck." Is taking something. A guy gets caught in baseball or football. They say four game suspension. You get caught oh, cycling or eight yeah, yeah. game or twelve game or f-
1: it's it's more for baseball. It's more than that. It's like what's I first think,
0: time offense? What's that?
1: I think it's fifty now.
0: Okay, I think it's in cycling. 50. It's two or three years. Two years. Yeah,
1: and I think more than that nowadays. When you've
2: when you're caught and you've served a two year suspension, you come back as damaged goods. Okay. As a baseball player, if you get a f- even a 50-game suspension, your team's still going to take you back. Right. Sure. You you know, yeah. in cycling, A, you lost your contract. Your salary went from large to zero if you were a star a rider. A lot of teams aren't going to even take a chance on you anymore. Yep. You're right. too you're too big of a risk. The difference is you've put uh, – most teams, I think, have a, a payroll of like 80 people. Okay. You put 80 people's jobs <laughs> at risk. Yeah, right. And so that's where – it has absolutely turned for the young cyclists. Now they realize the stakes, and they kind of all say, "Hey, we really never wanted to dope in the first place. Right. Sure, we just had to to keep to if keep we want to be if we wanted to keep up, we'd rather not put this stuff in our body. We know right. it's not good for it. everyone. knows it's not good for you yep. to manipulate your chemistry. But if you want if you had the ambition and the and the the uh, skills, right. I mean, it was only the best cyclists that got the opportunity to. Uh, be invited to a pro team where then doping was probably introduced to it was only the best amateurs that became the best pros and along the way they might have doped back in that era Mm -hmm. but so they were already already the best cyclists of their generation Mm -hmm. but they still had to do it keep up they didn't want to do it they just they wanted to be try to win the tour de france you know right completely different now you take al philippe all these young guys no way there's no way it's it's for themselves the sport um, and they're, they're not desired if they're going to go down that path.
1: Do you think that cycling, I don't want to say overcompensated, but they, they went like, okay, we're definitely we're going to make sure that this is just out of our sport completely 100% because to, to, in a way to kind of build up their reputation again.
2: Um, the risk
1: factors
2: of doping in different sports are, are one thing, mm-hmm. but the per- performance enhancement, advantages of certain doping techniques are different in each sport and in aerobic sports um and in strength sports um you you get a big advantage from either the steroid-based things or the oxygen carrying things cycling is kind of both you need the power and strength and you need aerobics Mm -hmm. know, running is almost a pure aerobic sport okay there's not that much strength involved but you know cycling is power is all it's all about power and blood to the ox to the muscles mm-hmm. so cycling the advantage of doping is significant in cycling i mean again you couldn't compete without it right. at, at a certain era mm-hmm. to your question i think um i i think cycling thought it was the only way forward for survival mm-hmm. because in germany for instance the television, they stopped watching the, they stop broadcasting the Tour de France after oh, the, really? the terrible doping stuff. Okay. Um, we never did in this country, but they stopped. Networks start uh, broadcasting. It's back now.
1: Yeah. So,
2: evidence this year's Tour de France, it was exciting. It was clean. Right. There was no talk about doping because everyone believes there's not doping going on. There will be those outliers, there will be those cases, but right. you are, you are, run out of the sport today if you're doping because it's it we've we've seen what happens when the, the, you go through a, a terrible doping phase the sport is going to die the yeah. sport's going to die yep. so i think cycling realizes it's the only way forward is clean and mm-hmm. where they're going to do everything they can to keep it that way and it starts from the attitudes of the riders it starts with sure what i was talking about when i was 18 and 19 and racing in belgium and i saw it it starts at that level where the parents know if this kid's going to be a professional, he has to do it clean, like everyone else. Right. That's what not, if this kid's going to be a professional, he's got to start doping now, just like every other 19 year old. So, yeah. so, so a, it's a complete attitude change. And that takes a generation or two to oh, happen.
0: Yeah. You know, cycling is so sponsor uh, dependent that these companies don't want to be associated with it. And so they pull their sponsorships, whereas baseball has many more streams of revenue. And so if they get a black eye, they're still getting commercials. They're still getting airtime. They're still getting people showing up in the stadiums. Uh, Cycling is very uh, dependent on their sponsorships. Well, anyway.
2: You're absolutely right. And the one thought on that is when I started in the sport, there was no such thing because I uh, was, was around a lot of the sponsor contracts being on the management side. There was never something called a morals clause or an ethics clause. And nowadays, every rider has a morals ethics clause and every management company like Jim Okowitz has a serious morals ethics clause, which means the sponsor can pull out at any time with a doping infraction. Right. Sure. Every right. sponsorship contract. Right. Has well, it. anyway, yeah. uh,
0: I want to wrap up here the first half and uh, we will be back next week for the second half or here in the studio in about five minutes for the second half. Okay. Talk to you soon.
1: Welcome back to the Bait and Switch podcast. My name is Jim Martin and as always I'm here with my co-host Chris Beyer. Tonight is our second half of our interview with Mr. Tom Schuler, local cycling legend. Thanks again for joining us Tom. We appreciate it. Great to be here for the second half. So, so we talked a lot about the cycling career and your involvement in that. I wanted to Ask you a little bit about what you've been doing since uh, ninety 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 one ish. I know you got a, a couple of different races you're involved with and and organize the Tour of America's Dairyland. That's yep. correct. This was our eleventh year. Yep. And then the other one was the Ride Across Wisconsin. Ride Across Wisconsin Raw.
2: Well. Well. Okay. Um, this what? is will be the fifth year. What is your title with Toad? S- since I retired, I, I primarily got into athlete and team management. Okay. Um, in cycling, triathlon, mountain bike, 20 different teams over the last 20 years uh, when I started my company called Team Sports in uh, 92. The second part of the business besides the team management about 15 years ago we started managing events. For events you can be an event owner or you can just do the work and be a a manager, so to speak. So the Tour of America's Dareland, I'm one of the three owners in that event. Okay. Um, raw, I'm just a, a worker, a manager. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm responsible for certain things. I helped found the event with Dave Slabowski, who was, it was his idea. Dave mm-hmm. Slabowski of the Bicycle Federation of Wisconsin. It's a fun, Raw is a fundraiser for the, Bicycle Federation of Wisconsin, and that's coming up this weekend. That's a one-day ride uh, across the entire state. Correct. Up until this point, it's been from Dubuque to Kenosha. This year, we mix it up and we are change it up. We're going from La Crosse to Green Bay, 225 miles in one day, or... You can do it in two days, and we have about 550 in the one day, and about 350 in the two day. Oh, okay. So it's very a very fun event. I'm responsible for the route, for the, um, the and the, the rest stops are my two prime areas. I've driven the route four times. I'm marking the course this Thursday. I need to know those roads like the back of my hand, and they're all oh, yeah. rural roads. We find the best roads, low traffic, best surface, oh, you know, great. scenic that we can find, and it, it takes a lot of work to find. A path from Lacrosse to Green yeah. Bay, two hundred twenty-five miles. That's cool. But, um, so
1: you're not you're not doing any uh, like bike trails then or anything. It's all on the road. No, with when you
2: when you get over a certain threshold of people in a dense populated area, you need to get off the trail and onto the roads. That makes but, sense. And yeah. then um, the Bone Ride is another ride that I organize. It's a free, fun ride. We do the third Wednesday in May. Mm-hmm. We ride from here to Madison. We have lunch and we ride home. Oh, okay. what uh what's the origin of the name <laughs> so the origin is um we had, we had a nickname for a fellow racer and we called him the bonehead <laughs> because he would train at about 25 miles an hour and he would race at about 27 miles an hour okay he had a two mile difference between his training and his racing and he would kill us in training sure and we would kill him in racing so <laughs> we call it, we nicknamed him the bonehead yeah so <laughs> the kind of miles where you're tr- you're going fast on a long training day we call those you know bone miles just long long miles okay um, right and the race? bone <laughs> ride
0: is on that concept in the sense that it's not a race
2: but it is right you guys go at a very fast pace yeah we keep it at about 20 on the way out very civilized we all come into madison and then on the way back they get to race yeah i keep them together till uh cottage grove and then all bets are off and they just take off yeah and it's a suffer fest on the way back yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and
0: it's a they call it a drop ride you get dropped they're not waiting for you
2: we do have sag vehicles yeah okay. we have sag vehicles and you can hop in we if you have a flat tire we fixed your flat and we shuttle you forward to back the go, the goal is to ride into madison as a. Hundred and fifty person group altogether. And we oh, usually okay. do. Oh, we don't cool. drop that many people. Yeah.
0: Cycling, I've heard it said, you know, this is an old saying now, but cycling's like the new golf. People get together, it's a social thing. Do you see a lot of that? Has it changed a lot
2: over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Um it drives a lot of the sales. The the people buying nice bikes and clothing aren't gonna race. They're there for their fitness, they're there for you know, to clear their heads. It feels good when you get back. It's, um, you know, a round of golf takes a lot of time, and so does a long bike ride. But you feel differently after you've been on your bike for four hours. You know, you sure. generally feel tired and refreshed. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think I will actually get on my road bike tomorrow at six a.m. I was invited to join some friends who were in town for RAW. Oh, one okay. from Lacrosse. And I, I think I'll get on my road bike since the for the first time since May 18th. But for a one hour spin, we're going to meet at 6 a.m. at the Hollander. And okay. uh, you better get
1: out of here. You I need some I sleep.
0: Don't, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen you on a spokesman ride. Have you ever been on a spokesman? I've,
2: ride? I've done a couple. I've done a couple on like a Sunday morning mm-hmm. and learned some new routes. But mm-hmm. that was probably ten years ago. Okay. Did I did the the Tuesday morning puker ride one day?
0: But you're you're a bit of a race planner, as as I'm as am I. In our group, I'm known as the guy that plans a lot of the stuff.
2: <laughs> Did you make that route? I is came up with route?
0: the – it's called the 10-mile
2: tour of Tosa. No, no. Oh, that, I've heard about that. No, I mean right. the the Puker Intervals. Yeah,
0: those on Revere. On Revere, yeah. I came up with that back that route. in the year 2000. That's an awesome and, route. And uh, coming yeah. up in uh, about a month, I've got uh, – I call it the Massacre Ride, which is 100 kilometers of all the toughest hills I can put into one ride. And we did last year in, in 62 miles, 100K, we did over
2: 5,000 feet of climbing. That's what people told well, that's me. That's amazing for around here. So send me the information on that one, The mass, that's the Massacre. The massacre yep. And then is that the one that Brent Emery would have publicized and gone on with you?
0: He or did does, once.
2: He does did he once. do his own version of a ride like that? <laughs>
0: I don't know, but one year he was on it with us. Okay, about four or I five think
2: he was ago. promoting it, and I saw something.
0: Yeah, Brent um, Emery, another local cycling legend.
2: Did you compete against him? Yeah, I did quite a bit. He, um, you know, for the bulk of his career, he was primarily a velodrome racer. Right. So we didn't overlap that much, except in some of the criteriums. But yeah, we'd go. We were never, um, we were never, you know, trade team teammates. But we were, he's a couple of years younger than I am, but I think we were on the 80 Olympic team together. He was another
0: guy that was affected by the boycott. Yeah, and mm. then he
2: got his medal in 84, his silver medal in Los Angeles um, on the in the team pursuit. But anyway, yeah, so cycling
0: is the new golf. Our group, you know, you'll get anywhere from six or eight to 25 people showing up for a ride. And uh, there was a book out years ago, I read it, it was called Bowling Alone, do you remember that? No, I don't. But bowling alone was a sociological <clears throat> study of how people don't get together in groups anymore. You know, hence bowling alone. You know, people used to be in bowling leagues mm-hmm. and now people are doing things in a solo fashion. And you know, the the death of all these, you know, Knights of Columbus and and the Rotary Club about how those used to be very integral to communities and now everybody's sitting at home by themselves and and not joining clubs and not getting together. With groups, and they talk about how, um, especially with men, you know, men a lot of times can be more loners, and being involved in a group like a cycling group, like the one we're talking about, brings people together in a camaraderie that a middle-aged man wouldn't have. It's, it's important that uh, people do things like that.
2: Well, you know, we, we all played stick and ball sports, right? Mm-hmm. And as an adult, you, you know, you, you're not going to call up your buddies and say, hey, want to <laughs> go play some baseball? Yeah. Right, right. You probably wouldn't even say, want to go toss the football? Right. You might play organized hoops in the winter at a, you know, in a gym somewhere at the YMCA. But Until your knees give until out. Until your knees give out. You <laughs> might even play soccer until you roll your ankle. But you might say, like, they reached out to me tonight and said, hey, we're riding at six. This guy's in town. Tim's in town. Do you want to go? the bullhead yeah. is it? That's not, right? not the bonehead. No, 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 it's not. But it, he was from La Crosse. Very good. Yeah. No, but Tim is also from La Crosse. He lives in Colorado now. And he's in town to do the raw ride. Sure. But yeah, you, again, it's very easy to socially say, as a spokesman, hey, it's a full moon. Let's go do a bike ride. And the next thing you know, it's the full moon ride.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another local shout out to Marty Vanderveld. Marty joined our group, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And he came up with this idea. For having a ride at every time there's a full moon when the weather's climate when the weather's good and it
2: grew from nothing to now 200 people show up it's a great idea and that's the point right it's a very easy sport to do i mean running is tough to do you have to be with people of your exact same caliber you know what i mean right cycling yeah. because of the drafting effect and You know, you can ride with a a wider range of people, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also, again, do it with four people, eight people, two people, one person. It doesn't matter. You don't need a team. You don't need, you know, nine people or whatever it takes to have a team. And And it's easier on your joints unless you crash. So Mm -hmm. let me ask you this. Tell
0: me your worst cycling crash.
2: Yeah, I was really fortunate. I didn't have any... Uh, uh, crashes that really took me out for any length of time. I had plenty of good crashes, but they, I just got skinned up. Mm. Um, of course, you weren't wearing helmets back then. That's crazy, right? Yeah. So, it's, for a good part of my career, we were either wearing those leather hair, hairnets, or when we raced in Europe, we didn't wear helmets. Yeah, it yeah. was crazy. That is, I mean, you wear like a little cotton hat. Yeah, that's you know. probably
1: fine. <laughs> yeah, know. Just, just, but you, <laughs>
0: but you didn't think about it, right? And there mm-hmm. weren't
2: that many crashes where there were head
0: injuries why not why not in the sense that i thought about that because they say oh isn't that crazy back in the you, 60s 70s 80s they weren't cra- crazy. they they weren't wearing helmets i don't know how I come people weren't it. dying back well time?
2: you would ring your bell and you would get on your bike and with a concussion you keep going yeah and that yeah. i'm sure i did that but you know nowadays with concussion protocols and you know they're trying to figure out in cycling how to how to deal with this because when you're in the Tour de France and you hit your head right. and you don't get up and go, you know you're out of the race. Yeah. And if there's a strict protocol concussion, like yeah. We have in football, we probably Just would have lost done. an extra, you know, 6 6 or 8 guys this year alone. Right.
0: What brought you to Milwaukee again from Detroit? Was it cycling?
2: Yeah, so I was uh, actually living up in Minneapolis racing full-time with the 7-Eleven team mm-hmm. um, and uh, Jim Akowitz had asked me to help him manage the team, right? So I moved here to help him manage the team because the he was based team. here. Um, so again, we were teammates with Eric Hyden on this AMF team, and then when the idea to have a true professional team started, mm-hmm. Eric was the anchor, right. and then assembled around Eric was were people like myself and a few others. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I forgot to ask what brought yeah. you to Milwaukee. soon as it was cycling, but you mentioned your wife. I thought maybe it was you met her or something like that. Mm-hmm. She's from Chicago, okay. and we did meet at a bike race. We met at the velodrome.
1: Ah, there you go. Isn't that romantic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Eric Hayden to me, seems like a, a great guy. Do you know what's he like? Super, super modest, super mm-hmm. humble,
2: um, nicest guy, um, never wanted to cash in like he could have from mm-hmm. his his fame. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he eventually... He did a little stint as a bike racer on our team. Sure. But then he went back to finish his undergraduate degree. Then he went to med school. Oh, okay. And he has a very successful uh, orthopedic uh, career. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He's okay. In, in Park City. Okay. Oh, cool. He has a lot of sports, mostly sports medicine specialty.
1: Makes sense, yeah.
2: Um, and, yeah, just the nicest guy. He volunteers his time. For a couple different teams, including the US speed skating team Mm -hmm. and uh, the professional uh, CCC team that Jim Okowitz still manages. Right.
1: Okay. I was little. I was probably, what, in 80, I was 10. So, um, you know, I I remember that for sure. But the persona was always, like you said, this humble, you know, Midwestern guy, just a nice guy. And good to know that's real. Oh,
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's real.
0: Another guy you mentioned. Uh, was Lance Armstrong, and you said you've got a relationship with him, and obviously we don't want to have you violate any trust of any of your friends here in terms of uh, talking too much about the relationships.
1: <laughs> what dirt you got?
0: <laughs> yeah, but anyway, not, not not talking about dirt, but what what uh, what has been the nature of your relationship with
2: Armstrong over the years? So, um, so we had the Seven Eleven team, and then it became the Motorola team, right? Yeah. But we did draft Lance Armstrong as an amateur. Right. That's what it was. In 91, the first year of Motorola for the 92 season, Right, we drafted him as an amateur. And the plan was that he would race as an amateur on the team with the national team. And then the day after the Barcelona Olympics in 92, he'd turn professional. And right. that's what he did.
0: And you were more into the coaching aspect.
2: Yeah, I was coaching. I think I took Lance to the... Uh, the Olympic trials were in Altoona, Pennsylvania that year. I was his coach mm-hmm. at those Olympic trials, his manager. And hmm. you,
0: did you have anything to do with him uh, going forward with uh, post U.S.
2: postal team? Was there any involvement with that? So he's on the Motorola team. He raced for Motorola for six years, mm-hmm. uh, maybe five years, from 92 to 96. right. The Motorola team ended in 96. Right. That team stopped. Right. And there wasn't a replacement sponsor. So, and he got cancer in 96. Hmm. So his career stopped and, um, or 95, I think he got cancer. So anyway, his his career was halted temporarily and the sponsorship ended. Mm-hmm. So he had a contract with, to ride for, I think it was La Vie Claire or one of the French teams. It was Kofidis. Uh, Kofidis. Cofidis, Cofidis. Cofidis. Um, the next year, and that's a whole other chapter. But anyway, um, so I left mm-hmm. the team in 92. Ni- yeah, 90, 93. Yeah, you moved, moved I on, left, on with your I life. I left the Motorola team, right. started my own company called Team Sports in 93. Well, I'd, oh, okay. I'd actually started it the year before.
0: After you finished with Motorola, what was the nature of your relationship with Armstrong from then going forward? Just- you
2: know, so I have a phenomenal relationship <clears throat> with Jim Okowitz to this day. Uh, we don't get together often, but we'll go to, we have reunions every so often and I'll talk to him. So with Armstrong, it's every relationship and I would say, in the sport got strained. You know, if you had a relationship with Lance, it got strained if, if you know, going through the difficult times he had. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. I wasn't working with him. I wasn't working on the team he was on. I didn't have any uh, professional interaction, but it definitely got strained during those years for sure. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't really. I've got. I've had no reason for it to come back together. So mm-hmm. yeah, you don't. Uh, you don't run into him. You don't run in those circles. No, I. You know, he he doesn't travel much in cycling, and I don't travel in that that the type of cycling events he might go to. Mm-hmm. But right. he really doesn't go to a lot of cycling events. Mm-hmm. Do you have yeah. his phone number? Absolutely not. No, I, haven't, I haven't had his phone number. Good question, though. That's a good. Kind of I haven't had his phone cool. number phone. I, bet, oh, I do have his yeah. phone number. It's probably an old number. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> How about uh, Greg LeMond Did you know him well?
2: Yeah, Lamond I. I've, and that was, and that's part of the, the the rub between my relationship with Lance. Is I've always been a good friend of Greg Lamond's. <laughs> you know, just he's younger than I am, but we raced together and just socially we we would do things. And when he and Lance started fighting, you know, if you weren't on Lance's, if you were on Greg's side, you couldn't be on Lance's side too. Right? Sure. Remember when right. they were fighting. So I was, I've been a friend with Greg forever. I'm not, I'm not giving up my friendship with Greg over you. Sure. So that's kind of the rub. But, yeah, Greg's been a good friend for a long
1: time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Do you have his
2: phone number? Absolutely. <laughs> he doesn't answer his phone when I call him, but I who have was, his phone number.
0: <laughs> who, was the, uh, who was the greatest cyclist you raced against? Lamont, maybe?
2: Yeah, I mean, no doubt. Um, you could say, I mean, I raced with, <laughs> I really right. didn't race against right. Bernard Hino. Um, you were in the same races yeah, with him. Yeah, I was him. in the same races. Um, certainly Francesco Moser. Um, never raced with Indurain, But, yeah, I, I think Lamont just because to be an American and win three Tour de France's, um, doing it his way, doing it uh, clean, Think about that. It's a pretty big deal. Clean. Mm -hmm.
0: Now you were probably more of a domestique, perhaps. Uh, What was your role on the team, and what was your most notable result?
2: So, as an American team, we we you know we started with all getting our chances to win. As we got to Europe, we had to be more specialized, and I would have fit in more to that domestique role but I didn't race with our team that much in Europe and we were trying to break the convention of how teams were organized. So I mm. I had I won a fair amount of bike races. I was more what of a sprinter you. and um, well, but you, not in Europe. Okay. I, I didn't never won a professional bike race in Europe. Okay. I won amateur races in Europe and Belgium, but back here I won a lot of races just because I was a sprinter. But here we treated it differently, where where every rider would get a chance to win based on their strengths. But in Europe, you can't do that. If you you know, mm-hmm. there's only a few sprinters that to get that to go get to go for the win, and there's only a few GC riders or classic riders. Right. And I, I didn't. My career wasn't that extensive. That I, but I was definitely in the domestique side of things. And right.
0: Right. Yeah. And again, you know, I followed professional cycling. Was there any? And I know the races you're speaking of. Was there any race where you finished in the top 5, top 10, top 15, or something like that?
2: I mean, my biggest result was probably winning the, the U.S. Professional Road Championships, which used to be in Philadelphia. So that was Well, that that certainly mm-hmm. counts. 80, that we, sure. And here in Wauwatosa, we
0: have two-time winner of the uh, U.S. That, the exact same race. Yeah, uh, Matt, Matt Boucher. Matt Boucher.
2: That race used to be open to the world. And so the person I beat, who was second, was... Mario Cipollini's brother. Oh, really? Hmm. You know who Mario Cipollini is, right? Yep. The race eventually became for for Americans only.
1: Oh, okay. You know, they, right. Some
2: national championships are just Americans. That's how it is now. Mm-hmm. But back in the early days, it was wide open. So sometimes... An American would win the race outright. Right. As or you did, you're saying. As yeah. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you would finish fifth and you'd become the U.S. Pro Champion. Because you were okay. the highest the first ranked American. American, American. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so you're so saying, so saying
1: back when you did, it was harder. Much harder. Much, much harder, harder. Yeah, yeah. Much, <laughs> much, much harder. Well, that's, I usually do my homework.
0: I did not know <laughs> that you were the <laughs> former U.S. Pro Champion.
2: Yeah, in 87 and in, um, in 85, I was sprinting for the win and I pulled my one of the more bizarre mishaps I've had in my career. I pulled in the sprint, my my gear shifted from the 15 to the 12 and that lurch Ooh. this was before ratchet, this was right. friction shifting back in the day and I pulled my foot out of the shoe right with so much we had toe clips came out of the shoe and I rolled rolled across the finish line in last place in a group of 5 with my oh. stocking foot on the pedal, <laughs> and my shoe dangling in the toe clip. Yeah. Uh, Nowadays, but my teammate yeah. Eric Hayden was also in that sprint, and he won the race.
1: Yeah. Do you have his phone number?
2: Uh, I yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't you call could, him. All right. either. <laughs> you change
0: the story and just say you let out Eric Hayden
2: I did orchestrate. I absolutely orchestrated his tactics. I yeah. said, sit on. You know, again, he didn't. I had a little more experience than he did from bike. I said. Sit on for the last 10 miles. I'll control these guys. And uh, I I've positioned myself at the front. He came from the back with the head of steam. Mm-hmm. And no one was going to catch him. Yeah, there. right. And my foot pulled out. But anyway, that's a that was an interesting story. But it was really good for that race in 85. That was the first edition of that race mm-hmm. in Philadelphia to have Eric Heiden win that race. Yeah, It yeah. really helped put that, that race on the map. Yeah. Sure. Well, hey, uh, I want to
0: thank you for stopping by here Tonight, Tom, yeah, we had a again, good time Tom. talking. We, yeah. you know, as being a spokesman, we might hear a, have a lot of fellow cyclists listening to this podcast and all these different uh, things that be only interesting to cyclists. will have an audience for those people. <laughs> um, so, anyway, thanks a lot, yeah, Tom. thanks again, Tom, and we'll uh,
2: we'll wrap things up here. We'll count it down. We, we count
1: down the, to the music. Count down yeah, to the music. I think. Did we do that for the tour? I don't. know. I don't, I don't think,
2: know. think we, we did, did. But that. thanks, Jim. Thanks, Chris. I sure. very much enjoyed it. All right, here all we go. Do the
1: countdown. Three, Three, two, two, one, one. music. There we go.
0: All right, well, another podcast in the can. (laughs) Awesome. Good night, everybody. All right. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast with our guest, official photographer for the Milwaukee Brewers, Scott Paulus, when we attempt to quell any concerns that he might have as a first-time podcast guest.
2: There's one of them where I went up in a stunt plane, and the pilot just the only thing he briefed me on is that, okay, I've been I've done this before. when I tell you to,
0: I'm gonna go straight up in the air, just throw the camera behind your head. I'll tell you if you're straight and you're looking right at me and then you just snap away.
1: did you did you uh, did you puke? No, no Ooh, I'm, okay. I'm very proud.
0: Uh, I'll say yeah. this about half of our guests puke before the end of the night. So it's just, <laughs> yeah. be
1: prepared. be yeah. prepared. yeah <laughs> I, I
0: have noticed that I'm starting to get nauseous.